The 16th chapter of Leviticus, it's uh, found in page 81 in your pew Bibles, for those who want to follow along there. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 10 and then verse 34. The chapter is titled, The Day of Atonement. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering and to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. And then verse 34. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I said, we come to really the centerpiece of the book of Leviticus. This is a, a hugely significant revelation from God to the people of Israel. Uh, so much in this chapter. This is one of those chapters that begs for a second look. And so, in fact, we are going to look at this twice today, and then in a few weeks we're going to come back to it because there's so much here to see and it all depends upon the perspective from which you're looking. And today, as we are going to simply step back and just consider the word that frames this chapter. You heard it in the title, it's repeated several times, and that word is atonement. Atonement um, is a very religious word. It's uh, a word that's heard by many but understood by few, I think. Uh, if, you know, if you're familiar at all with biblical scholarship, biblical scholars love to pontificate about the theological significance of atonement. Uh, if you've ever sat in a class at, at the church, a savvy Bible teacher will come up with catchy ways to remember the word. If you've ever had this little adage, at one moment, uh, for, to remember atonement. But this is a word that gets thrown around a lot, and yet very few of us understand its significance. And that's why I want to kind of step back and take a broader view for what God is revealing to us here in Leviticus 16. Because the very basis of our faith, why we worship, the very reason we can worship the Lord at all, that we can be here, the gift of salvation, the assurance of eternal life, things that we talk about and celebrate are contingent upon this one idea. 
So what does atonement mean? Most Christians, I find, uh, believe that atonement is about the forgiveness of sins. And there's truth in this. But as you're going to see in Leviticus chapter 16, in reality, there's so much more to this concept, to this idea. The root Hebrew word for atonement, for atone, means to cleanse or to purge. Atonement means to cover or to reconcile. And in order to kind of marinate in this a little bit, I want to just step back and, and, and review a little bit or just consider, set the stage for why do we even need atonement? What, what's the need for atonement? Where does that come from? Um, and so I, what I want you to do, and I'm going to kind of come back to this throughout the sermon, is I want you to pretend that it's just you and me, and I come to you and I ask to borrow your phone. Okay? And as I'm borrowing your phone, while I'm using it, I break it. Now, there is a breach because of this in our relationship. There is something between us because of what's happened. Uh, I can't just ignore or pretend that it hasn't happened or that it doesn't exist because it's sitting right there as I come back to you, this broken phone that I'm putting back in your hands. And the, the, what's going to happen next, the act of repairing that breach, of addressing what's between us, is another way of thinking of what the Bible calls atonement. And just to, just first layer, to put it in our relationship at this moment in purely economic terms, okay? It's going to cost me, let's say, $200 to make things right between you and me. $200 because of this broken phone. I can either pay that money to you, or you can say, you know, don't worry about it, I'll just buy a new one. But either way, someone has to pay. Atonement has this idea of a, of a debt. But again, atonement, as we're going to see, is so much more than resolving a debt. But those are like the two in images, the two ways we often think of atonement in the church. Forgiveness of sins or the, the paying of a debt. And there's truth in that, but there's so much more to it. And what I want you to think about when we think about this need for atonement, of, of wh why we're getting pushed further, is if you've really, really been paying attention in Leviticus... You might ask yourself, why does this day even have to happen? Why does chapter 16 even exist in the book of Leviticus? Because, I mean, when Leviticus starts, when God speaks through Moses, he gives Moses the big five. He gives Moses the big five offerings. In particular, he gives Moses the, the sin and the guilt offering, meaning God's already provided, it said, those offerings as a means of atonement. That if, if something goes wrong, here's what you can do about it. The presumption of this need that's going to come up, and then God says, okay, here's what you do. So why is there this need for this day, given the big five that God's already given? And one of the things I want you to see is the Day of Atonement, what God enacts here, is further, once again, pushing the boundaries for us, the limitations of what we can see. The Day of Atonement, first and foremost, is about dealing with something that we don't often think about which is this residual buildup. Specifically for the people of Israel, the Day of Atonement is about dealing with this residual buildup of a year's worth of junk that's been brought into the tabernacle. Day in and day out, five different offerings, people are bringing in their offerings, but there's all of this sin that's being brought in and dealt with, and there's this residual buildup that's being addressed here on the Day of Atonement. And to give you a, a, a picture to think of this, uh, many of us have children or have had children um, in our house, and imagine that you have children who like to play, and they like to play hard, and they like to get dirty. And then they like to come in your house when they're dirty. And even though you tell them to take off their shoes or whatever, they just run through the house. And there's dirt everywhere. It's on the floor, the handprints, the whole thing. And imagine if that's not just one day, but just imagine over the course of a year, 
what that can be like. Now, most of us, again, would, in the, the first moment that happens, the first day, we'd tell our kids to wash up, we'd put them in the shower, in the bath, we'd go and we'd clean up any excess dirt, and that's exactly what God provides for the Israelites on a day-to-day basis. But you know as well as I do, if you've ever had that kind of traffic in your house, that as much as you clean up, there's dirt and filth and grime that seeps into places that we miss. The carpet, for example. How many of you have ever cleaned a stain on the carpet and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden it comes back? What the heck? I cleaned that. It was gone. And then traffic on the carpet, come, the stain comes back in the carpet. Um, over the course of time, this, there's this buildup from the little things that we miss. <laughs> if you clean your house every week, and some of us are really fastidious and we clean our house every day, you're still going to have dirt and junk that will accumulate. And again, I'm going to get gross now, but when's the last time you looked under your couch? Or when's the last time you looked between the cushions and found more than money? Ooh, oh my, ah. It's in the nooks, crook, nooks and crannies that this, the, this residual stuff builds up, and there's this need for a thorough clean of the whole house. And in the same way, in God's house, the Israelites have come and gone each day to get their sins forgiven. They've come and gone with their offerings, and there's been this residual buildup in the tabernacle through the tracking day in and day out of sin. And this is what the Day of Atonement, one of the things it's seeking to address, sort of this deep cleaning. And you'll remember on this side of the, of the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we don't worship God by means of a tabernacle or a temple. The, where we worship, God's presence is in our hearts. And... What we need to see here is the same thing happens in our own hearts, not just in our homes and in in buildings. Over the course of a year, over the course of of many days, our hearts, our lives can become tainted by the residual of sin in our lives. Tainted by stuff that gets taken care of, but there's still lingering things that build up. And so the Day of Atonement is dealing with this, what we often don't think about until all of a sudden it kind of, you can't miss it. God is being proactive in the cleansing of the residual buildup. But then there's also this that the Day of Atonement deals with. That, and some of us here are really great at cleaning and some of us are not. Um, but wherever you fall on that spectrum, have you ever missed a spot? And you've cleaned, have you ever missed a spot? I mean, God gives the big five, I talked about this, as preventative maintenance. God basically says, okay, things are going to come up and when this comes up, this is what you do to reconcile things, to clean things up. And you'll remember that one of the things I emphasized when we talked about those offerings is that specifically the guilt and the sin offering were for unintentional sins. They were for accidents and mistakes. And the key was that God provided these offerings when someone realized they had made a mistake or had had an accident. When the individual recognized the mistake or the, the accident, this was how they could take care of it. They could atone for it, right? But here's the question. Do we realize everything? Are there gaps in our awareness? Do we miss spots? Now, you know, I talked about God addressing the unintentional sins, the accidents, the mistakes. And I also, if you remember this, emphasized something very significant in Leviticus, that intentional sins willful, direct defiance, sort of thumbing your nose at the Lord is not covered. There's no atonement for that here. That's kind of assumed that, you know, that's just death. But there's also a middle category, and this is sort of what the Day of Atonement is also addressing. There's these unintentional accidents and mistakes that we, may re- that we realize, and then there are these intentional thumbing the nose at God, but there's this middle ground, which are what I will call purposeful sins. 
They're rebellious, wayward things that we do, but they're not specifically directed at God. It's not like we're, we're trying to basically thumb our nose at God or smite God in some way. They're just a reflection of our self-centeredness, our self-righteousness. They're just a reflection of we're, 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 we're messed up. You know, we're not right in the head and in the heart. For example, let's go back to the phone. Let's say that I, I borrowed your phone and I broke it, but let's say upon further understanding you come to hear how I broke your phone. And how I broke your phone was I was using it and I was talking on the phone and I was not enjoying the conversation I was having with the other person and in a fit of anger in my temper, I took my, your phone and I chucked it and it hit a wall. Now, I, I broke it. Or if you prefer something a little less graphic, um, I borrowed your phone and I was kind of caught up in my own stuff. I really wasn't paying attention and so I clumsily misplaced it and I lost your phone. In both cases, I wasn't, you know, intentionally trying to, you know, get at you or get at the Lord. I just was caught up in my own stuff. It wasn't an accident, though. It wasn't a mistake. It was purposeful. I was being clumsy. I was focused on myself. It was purposeful in that, or I was purposeful in my anger. But there's this middle ground of things that we do that aren't necessarily accidents and mistakes, but aren't necessarily intentional. You see, the Day of Atonement is based on the assumption that some sins never come to the attention of the sinner. There's stuff that we never realize. There's stuff that we never clue in about. Or to push it even further, there's stuff that in our own lives that when we do it, there's a part of us that kind of knows that it might be wrong, but we come to have all these reasons why it's right. Why it's right. Well, I didn't, you know, it wasn't an accident or a mistake, but I didn't do it on purpose. And the Day of Atonement is addressing these, these things that don't always come to our attention, these things that we can miss. Again, to give you a mental picture, it's not very pleasant, um, to help you kind of understand this idea, when's the last time you took an inventory in your house of all the expired food and medicine? Um, you know, there's all kinds of, and probably in anybody's home, expired food and medicine, and, and some of us are, are, some of it is very, very clearly marked. The date's right there. It's expired. Some of it is clearly marked because of the look or the smell. I mean, it's, we, just, we know that that needs to be taken care of. Some of it's um, easy to throw away. Some of it's not so easy to throw away because you sort of have a, you forgot it was defective, you know what I mean? You forgot it was not working. And now all of a sudden, you know, you, you come to realize, oh yeah, that piece of luggage, the handle's broken or something like that. Some of it's harder to notice. Some of it's unlabeled. The, the label on the expiration date's worn off or, the, or it's not sorted in the right place or it's stuck in the wrong place so you don't notice it. And some of it's really hard to get rid of because there's sentimental value. We have this unwillingness to let go. The shirt is threadbare. It's got holes in it. But I love that shirt. It's so comfortable. <laughs> Again, I, there, there, there are things in our lives that we miss. And these are material things that we can miss and we can even justify. Sometimes they're easy to see. Sometimes they're hard to see. Sometimes they're easy to throw away. Okay, it's obvious. And sometimes it's hard to throw away. Even though it doesn't work, we want to hold on to it. You know, someday it's going to get fixed. Someday it's going to be better. And what this mirrors is in the same way we have this in our homes, there's this same buildup in our relationships. The same, there, there are these same things that build up in our relationships. You know, we can have arguments, we can have conflicts in our lives, and we can resolve them on one level, yet in the midst of resolving whatever the main issue was, do you ever have that experience where some of the peripheral stuff starts to build up? You know, the unacknowledged slights. You know, you, you keep calling me that, or the passive-aggressive jabs, you keep saying that, or many of us are masters at latent sarcasm. You know, I was just kidding. Yeah, you're kidding a lot. What do you mean by that? Or the unresolved 
things from prior arguments that just sit there. What Leviticus is also drawing out with the Day of Atonement is this residual, but also we miss things all the time. We miss them whether we're the, 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 uh, the person who lays them out there, you know, we, the spots and, and the stains that we leave, or whether they're spots and stains in our own life. And so one way to picture the Day of Atonement, one way to think of it, is to think of it as a great spiritual house cleaning that dealt with a year's worth of accumulated sin. The, the buildup of the, the fragments of sin, the, the, the residual, but also the, the acknowledgement of the things that we don't recognize, the, the t- covering all the bases, the stains that we don't see. So that's where this need for atonement comes from, why God creates this day, but how does it work? How does atonement work? Well, the first thing we see is, uh, Tony read it to us, is that Aaron, the high priest, has to come clean. We talked about this last week. The very first thing is he has to come clean before God. He does the normal sacrifices from the big five. He, he does the regular offerings. And this is just a way of washing your hands, preparing yourself. Don't be casual. Be respectful of the situation. And for many of us, how many of, you, how many of us have ever done spring cleaning? And it takes us three months to do spring cleaning. <laughs> right? Because you get distracted or because you really don't want to deal with it or you found, it just it get, overwhelms you. What starts right here with Aaron is Aaron, atonement is about being singularly focused. Everything else stops. Prepare yourself. Come clean. Focus on what's taking place. Atonement is about, first and foremost, not being casual, not being you know, tr- sidetracked, but being very engaged with what God is going to do. And then after this preparation that Aaron does, we are given two ways that God outlines to deal with the same problem. Two ways to deal with the same problem. That problem being sin, and the two ways are two goats. There's goat number one, both of them perfect, unblemished. Goat number one, as you heard, is sacrificed. Blood is taken and put in different places of the tabernacle. That blood, that goat, that first goat, reflects the cost of sin. One of the things we've seen as we've looked at sin is that sin is about death. Death is the taking of life. How does sin get dealt with? What's the cost of sin? The cost of sin is life. You engage in death, it costs life. And so how do you clean up the mess of sin? When we have dirt, we use water. The Bible outlines the way that sin gets cleaned up is blood. Blood is what covers. Blood is what takes care of it. Now, all of this with the first goat, the the sacrifice of this goat, the use of blood, all of this would have been familiar. All of this would have been expected, anticipated by the Israelites. This is kind of what God has already laid out. This is their day-to-day lives. It's goat number two that's different. It's goat number two that kind of blows open what atonement is. For them and for us. Because goat number two is about more of a hands-on engagement. You heard it. Aaron puts both hands on this goat. And this is about dealing with the root of the problem. Clean up is great. Goat number one cleans up the mess. And, and cleaning of the mess up is a form of acknowledging that something's wrong. But goat number two gets to the root of the problem. Goat number two gets to the, the bigger question, which is how do you make things right? How do you... How do you resolve the defect that led to this place? How do you prevent this from happening again? Otherwise, you're cleaning up the same mess over and over again. Again, to go back to my phone analogy to help you, goat number one is about buying the phone, the new phone to replace the old one. Cleaning up the mess. I broke your phone. Okay, here's the phone to replace yours. Cleaning up the mess. Goat number two is dealing with the other thing that remains that we often neglect or ignore in the midst of that. Goat number one deals with the what. What's the mess? I'll clean it up. Goat number two deals with the why. Why did this happen? How 
will I know? How will we know this will never happen again? Because see, what we don't acknowledge when there's brokenness is it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's also about the violation of trust. That's the bigger breach in the relationship. How is this not going to happen again? How did this happen in the first place? Let's say, just to, again, draw this out to you. Let's say that when I broke your phone, okay, and I shared with you, you know, I threw it against the wall. But let's say that when I first brought the phone to you, I did this. Well, here's your phone. You know, I, you know honestly, it's really not my fault. You know, you should have heard the person I was talking to. You should have heard the things they said to me. Honestly, they just set me off. You should actually bill them for your phone because what, that was just ridiculous, the conversation I had with them. Or let's say I said to you as I brought your phone, you know, this is an Apple. Apple makes their phones are crap. I mean, I don't know why you even have this phone. I mean, honestly, you ought to go to Apple because this isn't even worth what you paid for it. I don't, know, I don't, this, I don't even know why you bought this. Or what if I said, you know, honestly, you know, this really wouldn't have happened. I mean, I know it's broken and all, but if you'd had one of those more expensive protective cases, I think it could have taken that hit against the wall. I think it would have been all right. So really, you know, you really should invest in a better case. Or what if I turned to you and I said, you know, what's the big deal? It's a phone. So I broke it. Whatever. You know, you know no problem. Do you, do you understand what's, what's taken place there? And this is very common for us. Very, most of us don't like to take responsibility. Most of us don't have a problem cleaning up the mess. Clean, we'll all get, get down and clean up the mess, but many of us don't like to necessarily have to take responsibility. But do you understand that that is the larger problem? Because now, what exists between you and I and the breaking of the phone? It's more than $200. It's more than the replacement of a phone. There's a breach between us that's begun to grow because now I don't know, you don't know if you can trust me. The more that I evade responsibility, the more that I just clean it up, but I don't want to talk about how did this happen. Are you going to give me your phone, your new phone that I got for you now? How do you know I'm not going to throw it against the wall again? How do you know I'm not going to lose it? The more that I cover up, the more that I run away, the more that I blame someone else or make excuses, the bigger the breach, the lack of trust, and it grows exponentially. That's what God is drawing out here with the second goat. Now, some of you might say, this is the worst analogy ever. I, this is ridiculous. Because if I were in that situation, it's no big deal. It's a phone. I, I trust you. But what if it was more than a phone? I use the phone because it's something that we can conceptualize. But what if it was more than a phone? Imagine I did something to hurt your child, your parent, your spouse, your best friend. Suddenly it's different. Suddenly we understand that breach. Suddenly we understand it's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about that violation of trust. It's about that thing that's between us. And that's what God is trying to bring to the people's attention, to our attention with the second goat. That there's a burden, a burden of repentance. It's not just about cleaning up the mess. It's about repentance, which is about turning things around. How do things get turned around? How do we get back to where we were? How do we get back to where things were? You've ever had that situation where things get cleaned up and maybe you're one of these people and the person's like, oh, it's all good. And you're like, no, it doesn't look the same. Oh, no, it looks just like it did before. No, it doesn't look the same. In our relationships, we can think it's all good, but it doesn't. It's not the same. How do we get things back? Trust back. How do we get repentance? How do we turn things around? There has to, it has to be carried. And so it's put for the people upon this goat. And it's more than just put. This is the part that just gets me every time. Aaron puts both hands on this goat, the high priest does, and then begins to publicly confess all of the sins of the people. And there's three words for sins used here. All of it. All of it. All everything. Their wickedness, their rebellion, their transgressions. Side note, how long do you think that took? What was that like? I mean, 
We don't like to take responsibility on our own, but can you imagine publicly calling it all out? That's what God is demonstrating here, that trust is rebuilt. The real problem is dealt with by airing it out, clearing the air, airing it all out. And let me ask you, just in your own relationships, when's the last time you cleared the air in any relationship? You aired it all out. Many of us will shy away from that. And many of us will get a, we'll do a, we'll, if we're Aaron, we put our hands on the goat, we'll say a few words, and okay, this is totally uncomfortable, I'm done. Aaron is told to put both hands on the goat and to declare it all, get it all out. And the significance of that public confession, however long it took, what it must have been like, is that then after that is done, all of that stuff, all of the sins of the people, all of the stuff that's out there, it's, it's cleared out now, it's taken visibly from the presence of the people as that goat is led into the wilderness far away. It becomes, there's this great escape, the scapegoat, the escape from the consequences, from the all that baggage is taken out. Again, if you prefer a mental picture, what the Day of Atonement is all about is God basically saying in the midst of the day-to-day -day cleansing, the day-to-day -day upkeep of their lives, okay, the Day of Atonement is about taking out the trash. We're going to go around the house and we're going to get all the stuff we missed, all the residual stuff, all the stuff we didn't see, and we're going to place it in the garbage truck. We're going to call it out, place it on the goat. We're going to put it out there. Have you ever had anybody come over to help you clean your house? Do you ever get embarrassed when they find some of the stuff that's in your house that has to get thrown out? That's what this is. We're, we're, not, we're not, you know, all of it. Put it in here. Put it on the goat. And then we're taking it out and we're burying it in the ground and it becomes landfill. We're taking out the trash. Can you imagine what that must have been like the very first time? What must that have been like for that community? I mean, can you imagine what it would be like for us if we did that for the first time? Imagine that first moment that this takes place, and then imagine that in going through that, what that must have been like mentally, emotionally, spiritually, then God says, this is when God says it, after, as they finish, the very first time they participate in this ceremony, the Lord ingrains into their consciousness. He instills it within the legacy of the priesthood. What you witnessed, God says, what just happened here, what, we, what this day was about, do it every year. Every year. Year in and year out. And if you know anything about our Jewish brothers and sisters, still for the people of Israel to this day, on this 10th day of the 7th month, which is September or October, depending on how the calendar fluctuates, six months after the Passover, our Jewish brothers and sisters participate in what they call Yom Kippur, which literally means the Day of Atonement. In modern Jewish observance, you might ask yourself, well, how do they do this if there's no tabernacle? How is the Day of Atonement celebrated? For contemporary Jews, this day is observed through prayer, repentance, and acts of charity. And the acts of charity in particular are viewed as reflecting the sacrifices of old. Acts of charity is a way of making the sacrifices before God. For Jews, this is the most sacred of days. It is the first day of their new year. Their new year starts on the Day of Atonement. We talk about January 1st and New Year's resolutions. Imagine this being our, what New Year's resolutions were like. We're going to grab two goats, we're going to call it all out, and we're going to start fresh. That's the first day for the Israelites. It's so holy, so distinctive, that in, in their tradition, it's simply called the day. The day. A new day. A new year. A fresh start. A clean slate. What God reveals here to the people is powerful. But if you've ever looked at this before, maybe as you're letting it seep in, as you're letting it get into you, inside you right now, something has to stick out. There's an underlying tension here, as awesome as this is, and I don't want to miss that. The underlying tension 
as much as this is new and awesome, is that for all the pageantry we see in chapter 16, for all the glory of God's provision for the people on the day, what's got to stick out to all of us is this. The priests can only hit the reset button once a year. Yeah, in a sense, the slate is wiped clean, but really what we see going on here in Leviticus 16 is really just a stopgap. Really, it's just a truce. That's what's happening here. Because after all this takes place, if, you're, if you remember how the tabernacle is laid out, after the Day of Atonement, the curtain is still up. The curtain still remains between the Holy of Holies, God's presence, and the people. The people are still limited in their access to God. After the Day of Atonement, there's still a need for a smokescreen. And that's where we get that expression, smokescreen. Because part of this was Aaron, when he went into the Holy of Holies, had to burn incense like mad so as not to see the presence of God and die. And there's still a smokescreen after the slate has been made clean here. There's still a limit to how we can perceive God. And the scapegoat. The scapegoat is great. The scapegoat is gone. But that goat is still out there. That goat is still out there. Can you imagine? I mean, this is like a, could be a horror movie. Can you imagine? I'm serious. Think, think about that going through all of that, what that means. It's all out there. Can you think about an Israelite thinking, processing? You know, my sins have been cast onto this substitute, this scapegoat. And, you know, when, when this, 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 this question comes to you like in the middle of the night, but are they truly gone? Can my past come back to haunt me? Is that goat waiting for me out in the wilderness? Will I turn a corner in my life and see the beady eyes of that forsaken animal looking back at me? What if that goat comes back? New horror movie. What if the goat comes back? In fact, this was such a concern in the Jewish community. It's not here in Leviticus 16, but what later develops as part of the tradition on the Day of Atonement is the guy who took the goat out into the wilderness... This was haunting them so much that the tradition that got added was, okay, don't just take him out deep into the wilderness. You take that goat, take him up on a cliff and knock him off the cliff. That goat's not coming back. But here's the thing. You know it as well as I do. That goat always comes back. Metaphorically, that goat always comes back. Because the ledger gets cleared, but you go through 365 days and what happens? The ledger needs to get cleared again. And that's why God says the day gets repeated year after year after year. And there's a grace in that, but there's also a vicious cycle in that. Year after year after year. What starts to rise to the surface, as much as this is a, is, there's a grace in what God provides here, is there's an incompleteness. What I'm trying to say, beloved, is what is outlined here in Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement is about the covering of sin, but it's not about the forgiveness of sin. It's about the covering of sin. I mean, later on, the writer in the letter to the Hebrews will just come right out and say it. The blood of animals cannot substitute for the sins of human beings. This, 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 this is a temporary stopgap. This is an extension of God's covenant promise, meaning God's continuing the lease. God is continuing the relationship with us. But it's not the fulfillment of God's covenant promise. There's still this big thing that's out there. The goat has left the building. The goat is out there, but the goat is still there. And so, yes, 
It's in a continuation, an extension of God's covenant promise, but it's not the fulfillment. God's fulfillment of his covenant promise, his promise is to be fully present among his people without obstruction or limitation. No curtain, no smokescreen. God's full covenant promise is to completely and once and for all remove the sins of his people. And I want us to just, I want you to hang on to that tension. Because when we come back to Leviticus, what we have that those who were first given this didn't have is we have the ability to now see how God paved the way through what's outlined here in Leviticus 16 to bring the fulfillment of his covenant promise. And that's what we're going to look at next time. To close, what can we take away just from what we have? What can we take away? What's for us today from Leviticus 16? What is the gift of atonement as we have it? And there's two things. Two things I want us to take away. The first is atonement. If you, if you, you might have missed it. It's really easy to miss. Atonement, as it's presented in the Bible, here in chapter 16, is not about people making amends for the things they've done wrong. And that's often how we think about atonement, making amends. Look at my analogy with the phone. I broke your phone. I buy you a new one. But notice in Leviticus 16, atonement is not about people making amends for the wrongs they've done. It actually reads, atonement shall be made for you. Everything about the day, everything that's outlined, presents atonement passively for the people. The people don't participate in the work that takes place here. Did you notice that? They're represented by a priest who made atonement on their behalf. They were cleansed. Their sins were removed by a substitute. Two goats. One is a sacrifice and one is a means of escape. A scapegoat. Atonement is not about something we do. Atonement is something done for us. What was the job of the Israelites? The job of the Israelites on the Day of Atonement was to observe, to take in, to reflect on what was being done, on the atonement that was being made for them. On all of this that was happening that resulted in them being clean before the Lord from all their sins. And just in case your average Israelite might have missed this truth, just in case your average Israelite, not like any of us, might have said, hey, I want to participate. I want to do something. I don't want God paying my bill. I want to contribute something. I, want to, I just can't sit back. i got to do something. Just in case any Israelite might have said, you know what, this has got to be more of a two-way street. I gotta, it's got to be more even Stephen. God takes care of that here in Leviticus 16 when he basically says to the people, the day of atonement is also to be a day of Sabbath. It's a day of rest. This is the day when you stop. This is the day when you cease from what you do. And you reflect and dwell and meet with me and experience the holiness of what I can do. Of what I choose to do. Still today among modern Jews, Yom Kippur is considered the Sabbath of Sabbaths. You just receive. You just receive. We need to receive. And beloved, I ask you this morning, are we sitting and resting today in our lives, in the work of atonement. God cleanses us. He covers us. We don't cleanse ourselves. We can't. We can't cover or remove our own sins. Only God can. Only our Father can do this. And our Father chooses to do this. He heals us. Our Father forgives us. Our Father recreates us. Do we receive this? Or are we sitting there going, what can we do? Well, what do I, I got to do something. How do I participate? How, do I, how, do I, how am I a part of this? God's words are simple. Receive what you are offered. Receive it. Receive it. Abide. Rest in it. Reflect upon it. There's a movement in the church, I've talked about it before, known as the name and claim it gospel. 
You're probably familiar with this, but if you're not, it goes like this. The way the name it and claim it gospel works is that you're supposed to name and claim that which you want God to do. And if you name it and claim it with the appropriate faith, the Lord will bless you. That's how the teaching goes. Here in Leviticus 16, we have a different name it and claim it gospel. What our Father tells us to do if we're so active to do anything is to name and claim our sin together. To name and claim our sin together. To come before the presence of God as we truly are. To acknowledge all of our ugliness, all of our pettiness, all of our guilt and our shame. To not be so fixated on being all neat and tidy when we come here, on putting on a good face, on keeping up appearances, but to come together before God as we truly are. Letting all that's unfinished, all that's imperfect in our lives hang out. To declare it out loud. To declare it together. Because as we name it, we allow ourselves to be claimed by this God. Notice what I didn't say. It's not that we have to name it and then God will claim us. It's in naming it and in putting it out there, we allow, we receive, we allow ourselves to be claimed by this God. Our Father who embraces us as we are but doesn't leave us there. He takes us. That's what we've seen. He takes us when we let it all just come out. He takes all that junk, all that waste, all that chaos, all that sin, and he puts it somewhere else. He takes it away. He covers it. When's the last time, like the psalmist, you said something like this? The psalmist, this is why the psalmist can't hold back. The psalmist writes, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. When's the last time you said that? Last time you sat in that? How about the Old Testament prophet Micah? When's the last time you said words like this? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the, forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You don't stay angry forever, but delight to show your mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Beloved, what this gift of atonement is about is receiving it. That means we confess how desperately we need it together. That's what worship is about. Confessing how desperately we need it. And then saying out loud how badly we want it and then believing it. One of the most provocative things I'm encountering more and more as a pastor is how many people within the Christian church on the one hand can, will say, I believe that God forgives me, but then on the next hand will say, but I can't forgive myself. Think about that. I believe that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Beloved, if you're saying that, then you haven't received the gift of atonement. If God has said it's forgiven, it's covered, then what else is there to say? If God has taken it away, then what else is there to say? What are you hanging on to other than a, something that belongs to God? I encounter too many Christians who are content to have a clean conscience. That's what they think this is all about, having a clean conscience. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, is about God wanting us to have a clear conscience. When's the last time you will allowed yourself to receive the clear conscience that God wants to give you? Corey ten Boom, famous writer, Christian writer, had a struggle with this herself. We all do. Struggled with, I believe that God forgives me, but how do I actually receive this forgiveness, this atonement? She had this favorite mental picture. She said, when we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And then God places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. How many of us are fishing? 
How many of us are still wondering and worrying about that goat? You're here to worship God this morning. That's why you're here. I would imagine that's why I'm here. But how do we do it? What is, this is what we're wrestling with in Leviticus. Worship, in many ways, is simply believing that this God in Christ has accepted us the way that we are and he has dealt with everything that is wrong, everything. And in dealing with everything that is wrong, he is ready to use you to work through you without any hesitation whatsoever. And so you come into worship not wondering, not worrying, but you come into worship celebrating. You come into worship saying, Lord, I want to receive it again. You say, Lord, here I am. I am counting on it. I'm dependent upon you. You're the only one who can do it, and I'm thanking you for it. And because I'm counting on it and depending on it and I'm receiving it, I'm ready to go. Lord, you've given me a clear conscience. You've wiped the slate clean. Where do you want me to go today? I can go. What do you want me to do in this next moment? What relationship do you want me to engage? How can I enter into this space? How can I handle it? Lord, you've made it possible. Do you come into worship and allow yourself? Do you receive from God the peace that only he can give? The gift of atonement is about receiving. And that receiving means believing. But the gift of atonement, what we can also take away is learning. Are we learning? Remember that the book of Leviticus is about the recorded history of Israel after her redemption from slavery in Egypt. Hebrew slaves were reborn as children of Israel. And like children, they needed to learn how to walk in the wilderness before they could dance in the promised land. After more than 400 years in Egypt, they needed to learn how to speak a new language. And if nothing else, that incident that Drew referred to um, during the call to worship, that tragic and profane incident with the golden calf, reveals how limited the vo their vocabulary of worship was. And so in Leviticus, that's the way to see it. God is teaching us, preparing us for the fullness of relationship that can and will be. Our Father is teaching us what it means to be free to live and worship him as we were intended to from the beginning. I know that's hard for us to see. We thumb through Leviticus and it's kind of hard for us to hear that because all we do, we see as we thumb through is death, death, death. But beloved, this is the part of learning, part of what Leviticus is trying to spell out. God is, you have to learn you have a problem. You have to understand the penetration and reach of a wound in order to recognize and appreciate the cure. And so the Lord is teaching his people the basics through precise instructions, detailed practices. Our father is raising his children to recognize just how precarious our existence is, just how broken we are. We're not just weak. We're not just finite. We're not just accident prone. We're sinners. We need to wrestle with that. We need help in understanding what sin is and we need help in understanding why it's such a hazard and where the boundaries are on this razor's edge between life and death. We think there's a middle. There is no middle. It's life or death. And we can relate to this. Many of us are fathers and mothers, grandparents at least, interact as families. Fathers and mothers teach lessons of right and wrong to their children, and those lessons build upon each other. The very first lesson of right and wrong you teach a toddler is no. No. You try to get into some philosophical conversation about why it's wrong, you're gonna, the toddler's going to glaze over, but they get No. They get that initial boundary of no, and as, then as, as they get older, you build upon that, and now it's say you're sorry. Make amends. Say you're sorry, meaning take responsibility for it. And then as they get older, you can build upon that, and you get into timeouts and being grounded. It's more than just saying you're sorry. It's more than why did you do that? I don't know. That's not a good answer. Why did that happen? How do you turn things around? 
What we see here in Leviticus is God beginning to teach his children. He's starting with no. He moves to say you're sorry. And then he's moving to time out. You're grounded. It's not enough to say I don't know. It's not enough to just say you're sorry. This is what repentance looks like. See, once again, we come back to this, and I know I say it a lot, but it's, so, it's important. Leviticus is emphasizing, like other books in Scripture, that atonement is more than just a transaction. And I'm sorry, but some of us who've grown up in the church, some of us who've been Christians for life, we still struggle with this. And honestly, a quick casual read of Leviticus kind of feeds the beast on this one. We read through Leviticus and we go, okay, well, chapter 16, you get into trouble, here's the ritual you follow. Find a priest, grab two goats, and you're good. And in our modern parlance, what we say is we don't do that. That would be weird, right? We say, okay, find a pastor, pray the prayer, and you're good. You're good. That's what we've turned our faith into. We've turned our faith into a series of rituals, some religious traditions, this certificate of salvation. It's nothing more than this piece of paper that we receive at baptism. We, we treat it like a passport to eternity that continues to get stamped at every milestone of the, of the journey. First communion, confirmation, the altar call when you came back to the fold after being away from the Lord, that healing when you were diagnosed with cancer, that memorial service for someone you loved who kind of made you think, you know what, I really need to start thinking about my relationship with God. Beloved, when our faith is like that, when it, when it's like, when it only comes out, when it only gets acknowledged in these moments of departure and transition, it's just like a real passport. It just sits in a dresser drawer at home, forgotten until we need to travel. But our Father, through the work of atonement that we see here in Leviticus, is instilling within us something more than a transaction. He wants to be in relationship with us. He's trying to give us a sensitivity to teach us what redemption costs, what reconciliation involves, as well as a glimpse of what forgiveness looks like. Because here's the thing. We can't truly value or share the cure. We can't share the gift of salvation if we don't understand its cost and its true worth. Beloved, many in the Christian camp, when we want to share Christ with someone, will say, you know what, you just need to accept that you're a sinner and Jesus died for your sins. And we're shocked when someone looks back and says, what the heck does that mean? What does that have to do with anything? And if I were to press many of you, you say, if I were to ask you, why do you believe this? What does this mean? You would say, it just does. Jesus pays the price. How does one man dying on a cross reconcile and address all the sins of the world? Leviticus is our codex for understanding, learning. Are we learning about what atonement is and how it works in our lives? One last comment, especially for this service, to show you the disconnect that we're not learning, that atonement, we're not allowing God to teach us what atonement is, and that's parenting. How many of us parent by way of the gospel? How many of us, going back to teaching our children, there's two phrases we come back to all the time with our kids, many of us. You ought to be ashamed of yourself for doing that. Imagine if our father spoke to us that way, put the burden of shame on top of us. Or the other one is, how could you do that? Again, teaching our children to hide from guilt. That's not parenting using the gospel. Beloved, when we're using the consequences of sin to parent, we're only driving our children to sin. 
That's not what the Day of Atonement is about. The Day of Atonement is not about God saying to the people of Israel, how could you do that? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. God is acknowledging the consequences, but the message of the Day of Atonement is we don't have to be afraid. You don't have to hide. You don't have to carry that shame. You don't have to blame others. You don't have to find another scapegoat. Beloved, the sorrow that we try to elicit in our children, the remorse that we try to elicit in our children, is not supposed to be over the punishment or the consequences. In Leviticus, God doesn't lay out all this stuff so that people are afraid. In Leviticus and with our children, it's about leading our kids to Christ. And we lead our kids to Christ by helping them to face the conviction of sin. Calling it out, airing it out, but also allowing them to experience the freedom that comes from that confession and the grace and forgiveness, the grace of forgiveness, the redemption, that those things are taken away. That God is the one who reconciles things. Are we learning? Are we sitting in that? Not just with our children, but in our relationships. How many of our relationships do we hold hostage the same way? Atonement is not just a word, it's a way of life. Atonement is God our Father showing us that he wants us to have more than a certificate of salvation, more than a clean bill of eternal health. God wants more than a transaction, more than a deposit left on the altar, more than some time given on the Sabbath. Our Father wants us to be in relationship with him, to experience him, and to experience a clean slate, reconciliation, restoration with each other. So we'll come back. We'll come back to the picture language of chapter 16. The picture language of the Day of Atonement that shows us the reality of our lives. <laughs> but in showing us the reality of our lives at the same time points ahead of itself. Casting a vision of something greater. Of a final and permanent cleansing of God's people so that blood no longer need be spilled. So that his dwelling place among humanity is no longer separated by a curtain. That our view of our Father is no longer obscured by smoke. A view of a better priest. A better priest. Not a priest like Aaron who needs to make an offering in order to be eligible to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. But a better priest who becomes the greatest offering by being the perfect sacrifice and the ultimate scapegoat. Beloved, are we receiving? Are we learning about this gift that God gives us in atonement?